Let me begin by asking you a question, and uh, I'm not asking you to all shout the answers out loud, okay, but here's a question I want each of you to think about personally. How are you doing? Like, really, how are you doing? How are you doing with the pressures of life, with the stresses and the uncertainties and disappointments? How are you doing with the demands on your time? Would you say that you're currently in a season of thriving or surviving? The unfortunate reality is that statistics and anecdotal evidence agree that those who are called to leadership in pastoral ministry, of which that will be many of you, whether you're employed by a church or not, um, often find themselves in seasons when they feel very much like they're surviving as opposed to thriving. And I suspect the same applies to those leading within churches who actually do jobs uh, elsewhere during the week. Now, I read a number of surveys of people in church leadership. They're pretty shocking, and I chose the most shocking statistics out of them, okay? But these are actually quotes from very, very reliable sources. Over 75%, three quarters of ministers are extremely or highly stressed. 71% of pastors stated in this questionnaire they were burned out and they battled depression beyond fatigue on a weekly and even a daily basis. Only 26% of pastors said they regularly had personal devotions and felt they were adequately sp uh, fed spiritually. Over 70% of pastors do not have anyone they would consider to be a friend and hardly any pastors had any close friends. 77% of those married felt that they did not have a good marriage. Now, even if I have chosen the worst among the many stats I read, and they may be overstating the case, maybe by a long way, I think it is fair to say that those leading in the church face challenges, huge challenges, and we need to be very deliberate in balancing life and ministry in a healthy and a sustainable way. I was shocked and saddened a few months ago when Pete Wilson, founding pastor of Crosspoint, a church of 7,500 in Nashville, he was speaking at the church's 14th birthday, and near the end of his talk, he suddenly announced he was resigning. And he said, leaders who lead on empty don't lead well. And for some time now, I've been leading on empty. We've said that this is a church where it's okay to not be okay, and I'm not okay. I'm tired and I'm broken. And he said that he had prioritized the church over other important things in his life. Over the last couple of years, I've been learning a lot about myself. I've been putting some things in place in my life, in my diary, which have been hugely helpful to me as I've taken on the greater responsibilities of the national as well as my local leadership role. And I'm assuming that with me, you want to thrive rather than just get through. Jesus came that we might have life, that we might have it to the full, but there are a million things which have the potential to rob us of that experience. But there are things that we can pay attention to which can help to free us to live the kind of life that Jesus offers, offers even through sometimes the hard seasons of life. Personally, I want to live a life which has great impact for the kingdom of God. 
And I'm assuming that the fact that you have traveled and you've carved out this time to be here means that you too long to use the gifts and the opportunities and the influence that God has entrusted you with to make a positive difference in the world to the glory of God. But as you will know full well, life isn't a bed of roses. And even if we go with that analogy, there are times when the thorns on those roses threaten to knock us off course. Some of you will have come to NLC this year in a great place, you're firing on all cylinders, you're really excited, you're doing well in your personal life and ministry. Others might be facing particularly challenging seasons, and others of you will be somewhere between those two extremes. But I want to suggest that wherever we're at right now, we would do well to pay attention to the things that are going to sustain us in ministry for the long term, things that will help us move towards a place of thriving instead of just surviving. Three months ago, our senior leadership team here at Trent spent a couple of days with teams from 50 churches at Kingsgate in Peterborough, and my friend Dave Smith, who was hosting that, he gave a talk which so fits with what I want to talk about tonight that I'm gonna borrow some of what he said by way of introduction. One of Dave's great heroes, who he studied for seven years, was great hero of the faith, George Whitfield. Someone God used powerfully in the early part of the 18th century to shape the, really the history of our country and indeed many countries across what was then the British Empire. And he sometimes would preach for over an hour to thousands at a time without a PA system. Just to illustrate that, Exhausting, and <laughs> do you know, his congregations were often a multiple of this size, and he would preach for hours on end, and he saw huge numbers of people come to faith. He was an incredible man of God, an amazing evangelistic anointing. But while he was great at stewarding the ministry that God had given him, he wasn't so good at stewarding other parts of his life. He paid a great attention to his spiritual life. He was always in the Word. He was always spending time in prayer. But he wasn't so good at paying attention to his marriage, certainly not his physical well-being. In fact, he came from a school of thought which said, if you want to achieve great things for God, you literally burn yourself out for God. And so he would preach for hours, he would ride on, ride on horseback for days, he did many crossings of the Atlantic, not you know, in an airplane seat with a nice movie and a like, plane snack or anything. He's four or five weeks in a boat on turbulent seas, back and forth at least 14 times. And he would preach a number of times a day and do correspondence right into the early hours of the night. No surprise then that he hit his peak in his mid-twenties. He started experiencing ill health really from then on, and he died prematurely before he reached my age. I just wonder how much more God might have been able to use him if he had paid attention to balancing his life and his ministry. I'm not much of a reader, but I have avidly read some life-changing books by some of the leaders who I most admire and whose lives have had a huge impact for the kingdom of God as they've carried hugely demanding responsibilities. Bill Hybels, Wayne Cordero, and Pete Scazzaro are three of them. 
And these three all had one thing in common. They all experienced burnout, or they found themselves in a place of realizing they simply could not go on in leadership. And having hit that wall, they very deliberately put things in place in their lives to guard against that ever happening again, things that they wished they had done beforehand. And through their sharing their experiences, I've been learning some important things, which, some of which I want to share with you tonight. Before I get to that, I want to look at a guy in the Bible who experienced burnout and draw out how the Lord ministered to him. And then to spend the last section of this talk sharing quite personally some of the things that I've been paying attention to in my own life. You may have guessed the person I'm going to talk about is Elijah. And you'll find his story that you're probably familiar with in 1 Kings chapter 18. And uh, he was one anointed man of God. He had seen food multiplied. God used him to raise a boy from the dead. He has incredible confidence on Mount Carmel. The prophets of Baal and Asherah are there. And he's like, you know, God's going to do this thing. And you guys, you can call out to Baal as many times as you want. And perhaps he's sleeping, perhaps he's on holiday. Incredible confidence. And then, boom, fire from heaven, burns up the thing, the, uh, the offering on the altar. And then we have this supernaturally timed rainstorm. And then he ran ahead of the king's chariot 17 miles from Carmel to Jezreel. He is buzzed. He is elated. The power of God, it says, the power of the Lord is upon him. And he's just, you can imagine, as a human being, it's like, boom, that's amazing. That's going to, you know, that will go down for, in history. That was one of the most amazing things that happened in the Bible. He didn't know about the Bible yet, I'm sure, but... He is absolutely pumped, but there is a hitch. Jezebel, who has already killed lots of God's prophets, is now determined to kill Elijah. 1 Kings 19 verse 3, we pick it up, and it says, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. And then we read these sobering words. Here's this great man of God, and in 1 Kings 19 verse 4, he says, I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. He's done. He has hit the wall. He just wants out. One thing that strikes me about this story is the timing of his burnout. Um, you know, he's just experienced the, the most remarkable success in his entire ministry. He was the hero, this charismatic victor in this incredible showdown on Mount Carmel. And yet, immediately after this experience, he slumps. You and I can hit empty at any time in our ministry, whether we've just experienced a season of success or indeed of failure. One of my lowest moments in ministry was the day we opened this building 13 years ago, nearly 14 years ago. A great day of celebration after years working towards it. I had poured myself into working on the designs, getting planning permission against significant opposition, raising the money, overseeing the project. And on the Saturday evening before the first Sunday, I was the only person here. And I was hanging the last pictures in that corridor there. And you'd think I'd be excited. You know about the church turning up here for the first time ever. Most They'd never seen the building. They may have driven past it on the street, but suddenly, I hit what I later discovered is called adrenal fatigue. I just didn't want to play anymore. 
I feel like going home and calling up, curling up in a ball with the lights off and not turning up to church the next day. Now, fortunately, I didn't stay in that place for long, but it really did give me a shock. Evidently, there's more going on in Elijah's life internally that's contributed to his burnout than simply that Jezebel is after him. He's taken on opposition of this size before. There are vulnerabilities there that we see through this story that Elijah apparently has not been paying good attention to. And I want to look with you at how God lovingly restored him in three areas of his life. And so first of all, he comes, God comes and addresses Elijah's physical needs. Here's Elijah physically now exhausted. He's hit rock bottom, and the first thing he needs is sleep. It says here in verse 5, then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. And he wakes up to find that God has sent an angel to cook him a great meal. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then he lay down again. Elijah wakes up to the smell of warm, freshly baked bread. Not just oven baked, but this is baked over a fire of hot coals. If you're selling a house, they tell you, don't they, to put a coffee pot on and to bake some fresh bread. That smell might just be the most amazing aroma for a hungry person. Refreshed by that glass of cool water and eating his fill, he lays down again, and then he gets up again, and he has some more. And only then, having met Elijah's immediate physical needs, does God then begin to minister to the deeper parts of his being, restoring him spiritually. He is spiritually exhausted. Having had a great connection with God for years, he's suddenly lost much of his confidence in, in God anointing him, in sustaining him. And so God calls Elijah to go on a journey to a mountain. Not just any mountain. Horeb was the place where God met with Moses in the burning bush. It was the place where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. Horeb, the mountain of God, elsewhere referred to as Mount Sinai. And there God meets with Elijah. And God asks him, what are you doing here, Elijah? I imagine you probably thought, well, you invited me, but what are you doing here? And he answers with a complaint that we'll look at in a little bit. You know, this is where I'm at. This is what's going on. This is how I'm feeling. And listen to how God responds in verse 11. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. God's answer to Elijah's complaint was himself was his presence. Before he spoke into any of the specifics of Elijah's situation, God came and met with Elijah in a deeply profound and personal way. And we're familiar with what happened next. It says, then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. Now Elijah had to wait in the presence of the Lord. He had to wait for the wind to cease, 
for an earthquake to take place and a fire to pass by. Elijah had to wait for the Lord to reveal himself, which he then does in a gentle whisper. I wonder how many of us traveled to this conference with burdens like Elijah. We need God to speak into a specific area. We need direction, we need counsel, we need encouragement. And there will be times this week to receive wisdom and to receive prayer, but I wonder if this story lays down a simple challenge and reminder. We need to wait for God's presence. Above everything else, we just need Him. Elijah had experienced God in powerful, dramatic ways, like when fire fell from heaven and burned up the offering on Mount Carmel, but God revealed himself to Elijah now in a very personal and a very intimate way, in a gentle whisper. There's nothing more restoring spiritually than hearing God speak tenderly to us. The other thing we see in this encounter is the way that God addresses Elijah's emotional needs, as well as his physical needs, his spiritual needs, emotionally. And as pastors and as leaders, we can sometimes neglect our emotional needs, our emotional health, at the expense of what we perceive to be spiritual stuff that we're supposed to be doing. And here in this encounter, we see Elijah's emotions on display, and we also see how God uh, cares for him and how he handles his needs. So during this mountain encounter, we read this. And the word of the Lord came to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Hear his response, verse 10. He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. I love the fact that God allows Elijah to vent, and it's important to us to, to know that God isn't shocked by what we're really feeling. In his tenderness, God allows Elijah just to pour out his heart. And then he speaks to him. A key area of Elijah being so emotionally depleted is that he is afraid of the threats of the queen who's trying to kill him. But this is exacerbated by the fact that he has become relationally isolated. In fact, we read in the passage, you can read it when you get home, how he had turned away the one person, the one companion he had, his servant. He left him and went another day's journey into the wilderness. And so in his isolation, Elijah says twice, I am the only one left. And God responds by giving him a bigger picture, letting him know that actually he's far from being alone, he's far from being the only one who's been faithful to God. He explains there are 7,000 other Israelites who have remained loyal to the Lord. And furthermore, God promises Elijah a companion. He instructs him to go and anoint Elisha, who would, as you know, become his close companion and his eventual successor. God knows what he needs, and he provides for Elijah in every area. In this encounter, we see how God is, uh, with God, there's no need to censor our emotions. With him, we can be honest, we can be unfiltered, and we can also trust him to meet us where we need meeting in our emotional needs. And my hope this week is that this is going to be a place where you can be real, you can be open with how you're feeling before God and amongst your vineyard brothers and sisters. And my prayer is for, this, for the next few days, this is really going to be a really, really safe place for you.
As I talk about physical, spiritual, and emotional needs, I'm sure many of you will immediately recognize Bill Hybels' gauges, his dials. Bill came up with this idea that it's helpful to imagine that each of us have gauges on our dashboard like those in a car, gauges or dials which reflect whether we're running near empty or near full. And Bill says we have a physical gauge, a spiritual gauge, and an emotional gauge. And we do well to check those gauges from time to time and pay attention if one of them is running low. A book I read last summer is called Leading on Empty by Wayne Grudem. No, it's not. It's by Wayne Cordero. <laughs> Wayne Cordero almost burnt out, and he realized there were some things he needed to put in place in order to rebuild his life from that place, and also not only help in his recovery, but which would help ensure that he never ended up there again. And if, if you feel tonight your gauges may be drained, maybe near empty, I really would recommend that book. There are some in the um, Vineyard Records bookstore. If I was to ask you how your gauges have been this past year, or indeed how they are now, I wonder how you would respond. Personally, I have a tendency to soldier on through life's ups and downs without being very attentive to how I'm doing. And the more I see the short-sightedness of that way of living, the more I've taken the time to read and to think about how God designed me. Now, in sharing with you quite personally, as I'm about to do, I'm not saying I've got this sorted by any means. I hope it doesn't disillusion you too much to hear that fact. You might be thinking, well, surely John Wright is going to be like nearly 9 or 10, 10, 10 on all the dials all the time. The reality is there have been times when one or other gauge has been virtually empty. But I do feel this is an area where I've grown over the years as I've learned to, play, to pay closer attention to my gauges, and I've found that the swings in the dials become less dramatic. And so if one drops to like four, I'm more likely to pay attention to that rather than waiting until I've got a flashing red light. So what I want to do is share some of the things which have been helpful to me in the hope that there will be at least one thing you'll be able to take away tonight which will be helpful to you as you consider how you're doing. So as I did with Elijah, I'm going to look at these three areas of life and just give you a glimpse into how I'm personally paying attention to them. First of all, that physical gauge, uh, about 30 years ago, I had a really tough boss his name was John Mumford, and he raised the issue of rest with Debbie and me. We had been married four years. We had hardly taken a single full day off in that period of time. We had a jewelry shop for six days a week. We were at church on Sunday doing all the other stuff. And any holiday we had taken since our honeymoon had been spent at Christian conferences, either attending or being on teams. And so he said, well, there's a thing called a Sabbath, let's start with that. God designed you to rest one day in seven. And I'm like, how can I do that? It's too much to get into the seven. I'm working all the time. You know, how do I squeeze that into six? I'm just gonna blow a gasket if I do that. And he's like, well, you can live biblically or you can strive. But if you're, I'm gonna employ you, uh, I'm gonna insist you take a day off every single week. And if something interrupts it, it will get moved. And so our habit ever since then, 30 years has been to take a day off every single week, and if, like this week, I'm working on my day off, I will take Friday instead of Wednesday. Holidays, John told us to take them. Uh, this is your holiday allowance, your annual leave allowance, take them. 
and uh, plan them ahead of time. And apparently, I read just recently, that most people in this country do not take all the annual leave days their employers allow them. And so I feel spurred to pass this wisdom on to you. If they're in your allowance, take them. What about sleep? My tendency is to stay up too late and then find myself being chronically tired. I'm allergic to alarm clocks. It doesn't matter what time they go off. Even on a day off, if I've got to get an appointment, I've got to get up at wake at 10 a.m., Dang, ling, ling, get out of here. I want to sleep. I hate getting up early in the morning. But I know that I've got to go to bed at a reasonable time, and I aim to be in bed for at least eight hours a night. And of course, that varies, bounces around, but about eight hours a night. What about exercise? Well, in various seasons of my life, I've paid some attention to this area, but I've often allowed it to be squeezed out. And, uh, you know, I might have walked to the shops instead of driving the car, but I think of many times when I thought, you know, I could walk, to, it's gonna take me half an hour to walk there and back. I could do it in 10 minutes in the car, and I've jumped into the car. So someone asked me just before the summer, um, what exercise do you do? And I had to say, well, actually, very little. In fact, I think none may actually currently describe what's going on. And, you know, for years, I felt my life was too busy to take the time for exercise. But I really was challenged by this person questioning me. So for the last six months, on the advice of my psychotherapist, who I will tell you about in a moment, he told me, and I obeyed, I bought a boxing heavy bag and a pair of boxing gloves. And it's hanging up in our garage. And uh, that, I understand now, is the, well, about the best cardio workout you can give a body to hit a bag a thousand times. And um, it reduces anxiety. It melts away stress, it lowers cortisol, it releases endorphins, it does. And I have for years and years and years carried tension in my upper skeletal area, so my neck and my shoulders here. And some of you who know me well, you know I, sometimes I'm doing this and I have to sit, you know, I can't sit and do that for, you know, in a meeting I just turn myself because I don't want my neck to go and kind of seize up. So I, that's where I carry my... Uh, Stress, I guess. And I've had, for quite some time, a mains-heated, fluffy wrap that comes round my shoulders, and I plug it in the wall, and uh, I looked at it today. It's got a low, medium, high setting, and you're supposed to put it on, like, medium for uh, half an hour. I would just sit at my desk and work. I'd put it on high for, like, two or three hours <laughs> and still have pain. Anyway, I've discovered in the last six months, with the exception of one day, I have not felt any tension or any, pre any problem at all. Completely, I'm a new man, completely <laughs> sorted by the action of doing that. I have also acquired myself a personal boxing trainer. Now, just to be clear, I don't ever intend to hit anyone nor to let anyone hit me. So I'm not taking up boxing, you understand, but it's a new skill that I'm really enjoying focusing on, and you know, it gives me some accountability because I have to practice and so on, and of course I'm getting fit in the process. Debbie and I were just wondering whether actually a heavy bag and boxing gloves should be part of the pack we give to new church planters. <laughs> whether it's days off, or holidays, or exercise, or diet, or sleep patterns, or something else. Let me just ask you, what does paying attention to your physical well-being look like for you? God knew that Elijah was not gonna thrive until his physical well-being had been addressed, and uh, we're no different. 
What about that spiritual dial? You know, I know that I couldn't begin to do what I do or carry the responsibilities that I have without having a vital relationship with God. I would very quickly dry up and run out of steam. Now, I confess that I've never been really good at a daily quiet time, a time seven days a week of reading the Bible and praying. And I wish I was more disciplined in this. I've wished for a long time, but wishing it and even planning it in my diary has not yet resulted in the regular routine that some of you may be used to. I am pretty regular with the devotional time, but I've always been a little more flexible in my approach to relating to God, seeing it more like a, perhaps this is an excuse, but I see it more like a relationship with a close friend than a routinized time each day. And so some days I'll touch base with God more briefly, while on other days I might spend an hour or more engaging more deeply. A bit like my time with Debbie, it's flexible, it's not confined to a slot each morning. And that works for me. It is by no means the best way, it's simply my way, and I respect enormously those of you with discipline uh, who have a diligent daily time, quiet time. I believe all of us need to find a way of engaging with God which keeps that relationship vitally connected. My way is just one of many. One of the challenges that Debbie and I have found as we've journeyed and developed as leaders has been finding the time to engage with people who will spur us on in our spiritual journey. And we've had to be quite intentional about pursuing that as it feels there are less and less people and places where we would naturally get that opportunity. So over the last 20 months, we have invested time in getting help from a spiritual director called Larry, working with him through a book that he wrote called Journey with Jesus which is a helpful guide for engaging with the spiritual exercises of the 16th century monk, Ignatius. Uh, the 19th annotation, and I finish it this week. And we talk with him over Skype about what's working well in our relationship with God, what we're learning about God, what we're learning about ourselves, and things that we might do to invest deeper in that. Let me just tell you about one little thing that happened. I, I've always known that I connect with God best in nature. I am, according to Bill Hybel's book, he's quoting Gary Thomas, a naturalist, not to be confused with the other word. <laughs> it's my, one of my primary pathway to God is in nature. As soon as I'm in the mountains, I'm by a lake, I'm by the ocean, I find myself spontaneously praying and connecting more closely with him. So when life or work really gets on top of me, I've often over the years taken a walk by the River Trent. And I come back feeling centered, closer to God, and ready to face whatever it is that I have on. But I don't get out into nature often enough. Why? You guessed it. I have too much work to do to make the time. Now some years ago, I had a creative idea which I've been considering but not doing anything about, actually, for years. What about combining work with being in nature? And so I told Larry this, that I'd often thought about working by the river. And so he immediately asked me the challenging question, so, what's stopping you? So I got off that Skype call, went straight to my laptop, I went online, I bought myself a lightweight fold-up table and chair, and headed out to what I now refer to as my other office. <laughs> the river's just 10 minutes drive away, and uh, I went a few times until the autumn weather drove me back indoors, but I'm really looking forward to spring. No people, 
No interruptions, no internet, no emails. Just me and the Lord and whatever I'm working on. And one day the weather was so warm, I found a shallow area. I put my chair in the river and I read a book and made notes for a talk. And I took this picture on my remote shooting camera so that I could share that moment with you. I sat in the river for nearly three hours that day, and uh, some of you are probably thinking, this man is mad. <laughs> you know, what? Where does he get the time to do things like that? I, you know, or I'd much rather be in a coffee shop surrounded with people. What is he doing out there? Does he really have the time to sit in the river for three hours? Here's the thing, though. I didn't do any less work than I would have if I'd stayed in my study. But I not only got some uninterrupted time, which was very fruitful, but I felt spiritually alive at the same time. My emotional gauge, as with Elijah, let me just begin with relationships. I, I cannot imagine doing ministry alone. I love that God has surrounded Debbie and me with a wonderful team here at Trent and also in the wider movement. Not just colleagues, but real, deep, supportive, replenishing relationships with others who are on the journey with us. There's no shortcut to developing the love and the trust that grows with an authentic friendship. You know, friendships need time. And if I get too busy, that is something which can get squeezed. But I found it so important to prioritize that time, to prioritize time with Debbie, with my lads and their wives, and as of 10 days ago, with my grandson. I didn't do anything except have some children. They sorted the rest out. Spending time with, with friends in the church, other church leaders from around the country, indeed from around the world, and also with people who have nothing to do with church, friends who are not Christians and whose friendships I value whether or not they ever come to believe as I do. Life for all of us can be demanding emotionally. We all experience heartache and sadness and disappointment. Generally speaking, I'm a very calm person, but I've had times when things have got on top of me emotionally, and I've just not known how to healthily process things which have made me angry or knock the stuffing out of me. And I've been greatly helped by this Christian psychotherapist in America, Tom, who recommended I got the punch bag as one of the answers to these things. He specializes in helping people in very stressful and traumatic occupations like firefighters, police force, and those in pastoral ministry. <laughs> he does, and Debbie and I have this uh, Skype call with him every few weeks when we process what's going on in our emotional lives, and he's been immensely helpful in enabling me to identify themes and hot buttons, you know, what's just been pressed? What is that tapping into, John? And he'll go down a few layers, and I realize, okay, this is, I'm reacting out of proportion here, or whatever. Self-awareness is something that has really grown through his tutelage. And I realize not many people have access to a, a psychotherapist, but I think it's important to find someone you can be really open and honest with. Someone you can talk to about what is going on in your life. Someone who you give permission to reflect back to you what they're seeing, helping you to identify things uh, that have the potential to influence your emotional well-being, having, you know, challenging you to grow. And here's the thing with a relationship like that, with a psychotherapist, like, okay, we're paying you some money, you better 
you know, give us some stuff and you have complete freedom to speak into our life, okay? But with a friendship, we all know what it's like with a friend, don't we? We observe something, we think, oh, it's not very healthy, the way you've responded in that situation. Not sure whether I could go there. Is it safe enough to venture an opinion that might be helpful? Probably not. So as the recipient of those pieces of advice, it's very important to establish, okay, mate, I give you permission to observe my life, speak into my life. If you see I'm being emotionally unhealthy in any area, in any area please tell me. If you love me, you'll actually you know, take a deep breath, be brave enough to say it, and I'll do my very best. Not to punch you. It's not in my notes. Not to react badly to whatever you say. I remember being struck by a story in Bill Hybel's brilliant book, Courageous Leadership, where Bill reached a light bulb moment in, uh, he had some time with a counselor. And Bill had reached a point, really, of breakdown, of burnout. And when his counselor asked him, well, can you list the types of recreational activities you do, and let's choose among them? And Bill said, well, that's easy. I don't have any. I don't do anything at all that is uh, replenishing. And the counselor advised him in no uncertain terms, you need to schedule life-giving recreation on a regular basis if you intend to stay healthy over the long haul. God made you that way. And Bill Hybels took up sailing at that point, which he does uh, in a big way. When I was younger and less wise than I am today, I had no time for hobbies. You know, there was work to be done, family responsibilities to fulfill, there were chores and all that sort of thing. I didn't think hobbies were important, I thought they were actually a bit indulgent. But the more I've understood that to thrive in ministry, I need to pay attention to all areas of life. I've found that hobbies actually enable me to get really focused, really engrossed in something that isn't work, isn't responsibilities. And actually, when I get back to work and my responsibilities, I am energized to work more effectively. Sometimes I just need to take some time out and get emotionally replenished. After a very painful 19-year break, without a motorcycle for the last 14 years, I have had one. And whether I go out for a ride for an hour every week or two, or uh, you take a few days to head north up to the mountains, I know that I come back a nicer person. And one of, that's one of the reasons Debbie releases me to do it, <laughs> honestly. Time to go for a ride, darling. <laughs> Probably a few days would, would do it. And I've developed a whole range of interests. She tells me off when I keep adding to this list, but I, they include things like making jewelry, enjoying drinking and learning about single malt whiskies. We have a bit of a joke that Ralphie is the third person in our marriage. Ralphie.com, you can look it up. Ralphie is the expert on single malt whiskies, and I've watched dozens of hours of his videos. So, <laughs> relaxing in my sauna, restoring antique furniture, watching films with Debbie, and very occasionally doing something which involves a racetrack. <laughs> a book I read recently which I would recommend to all of you is this one, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by Pete Scazzaro, and I've got the old cover version. I'm gonna read some from. And uh, he writes in here, emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. It is not possible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. And he asks, why don't we take appropriate care of ourselves? Why are so many Christians, along with the rest of our culture, frantic, exhausted, overloaded, and hurried? 
And this has been so challenging to me because I realize as much as I kid myself that I'm pretty emotionally sorted, I realize I have all sorts of dysfunctions in this area of my life. And he has a chapter in here which touched on some key areas for me as he lists some symptoms of emotionally unhealthy spirituality. So I don't know whether any of this sounds familiar to you. Ignoring the emotions of anger, sadness, and fear. You can soldier on and ignore them, it's unhealthy. Dying to the wrong things. We all know, don't we, that we have some bad stuff we need to die to, but Pete explains that we are built with a healthy desire for things like friendship, joy, art, music, beauty, recreation, laughter, and nature, and God doesn't intend for us to have to lay those things down as we pursue his calling on our life. What about this, denying the past's impact on the present? We all have a past. We all had parents who were imperfect. We all had bad experiences probably at school and in early life. And um, sometimes we need to go back to these things and address them before we can really move forward. In the summer, Debbie and I received nearly 20 hours of ministry each from a couple in America who minister in the area of restoring the foundations, RTF. And speaking personally, you know, when I filled in the forms before I went, I thought, oh, this will be right, you know, I suppose, fair enough. 20 hours of ministry, <laughs> And um, I came away with a couple of, because it was called the thorough format, and by, you know, they, they described it well. <laughs> it was what it said on the tin. And I went there thinking I was pretty sorted, and of course, yeah, I knew I had some issues of my own, but I had no idea how much my past had shaped who I am now. And how I'd made some inner vows, and develop some ways of thinking and behaving which came out of some painful experiences early on in my life. And I had to look at questions like, why did I have such a need to be right? To be mentally strong? To work so hard? And I realized I was using a lot of energy trying to be someone who would be loved, admired, and seen by others as competent and capable putting all sorts of things in place, really, as protections around the vulnerable and broken center, you know, who, who I really was inside. And that was really quite profound to discover all that. And also, I came away, secondly, with receiving some significant revelation and, indeed, healing, for which I'm really very grateful. I realized freshly and profoundly that I am the Father's son before I am his servant. What about this one, doing for God instead of being with God? Pete warns us about the trap of becoming human doings instead of human beings. And he writes, our activity for God can only properly flow from a life with God. We cannot give what we do not possess. So there's the new cover. I recommend that to, to anyone who will listen to me since I started reading this. I recommend it. Basically, get it. Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, Pete Scazzaro. I'm just gonna to come to a close, and as I do, I just wanna to touch on one area very briefly of our lives that is addressed in the story here of Elijah. In this account, we see that having addressed Elijah's physical, spiritual, and emotional needs, having dealt with all the things Elijah needed in order to be 
Only then does God address what Elijah needs to do next. God recommissions the rested and nourished Elijah as a prophet. And the lesson here is that our vocation, what we do, doesn't define who we are. It is not our identity. But we do carry a need for purpose and challenge and vocation in life. Um, Elijah knew what he was called to be, a prophet of God, somebody God used to shape history. But in his burnout, he'd lost perspective. He'd lost his sense of calling. And so God comes and he effectively says to Elijah, you think you're finished, but I haven't finished with you. I want to get you back on your feet with a renewed perspective and to anoint you to go on shaping history. And so in verse 15, we read this. The Lord God said to him, sorry, the Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazel king over Aram, also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. God recommissions him. He sets him back on course, reminds him what he's for, what he is uniquely called to do. Some of you have come here this week looking for fresh anointing, fresh vision for yourself, for what you're called to do. Perhaps you're longing for a recommissioning or for clarity on what is God specifically calling to you in this coming season. Some of you may be here and you're just at a point when you're ready to throw in the towel. Really uncertain if you can continue. Wherever you are, I hope that this story of Elijah is a reminder that God delights first and foremost in who you are, not what you do. His primary concerns for us are our spiritual, physical, and emotional health over and above our vocation, what we do. But having said that, God does care about the things he's calling us to. Paul, as you know, in his letter to the Ephesians, tells us that we are all God's workmanship. We're created by him to do good works, which he created in advance for us to do. And we thrive best when we're doing those things God created us for, and not doing the things he created someone else to do. With all the demands of life, I know that I will be most effective if I say yes to what I'm called by God to do. And to sift out some good things, which I could do, in order to focus on what I am uniquely for. I am the only person in the world who can be a good husband to Debbie and a father to my boys. That is part of my calling. And in my work and ministry life, I thrive best when I know what God has made me for and align my life to that. Andy Stanley often says, don't give up what's unique to you for something someone else can do. Again, I have someone to talk to about these things, a coach who is skilled at drawing that out of me and, and helping me see the wood for the trees. My encouragement to you is to ask God to guide you in understanding what he had in mind when he created you. And find someone you can openly talk with who can give you a bit of an objective perspective and help you as you focus on those things. So as I finish, God wants us to know that he is interested in every part of our lives. I know it's a Greek way of chopping us up into chunks like that, not a Hebrew way of thinking, but nevertheless, it's helpful here in the Western world. He wants us to thrive in what he's called us to be, 
and to do and to experience life to the full. And my encouragement to you is to take at least one thing home from what I've said tonight and not leave it as a good intention, but like Larry said to me, I just wanna say to you, so what's stopping you from putting that idea into practice? I'd encourage you to go home and actually put some feet on it and turn a good idea into a reality.